Would you turn with me to the book of Luke? And as you're turning there, let's pray together. We praise and honor you, Lord God Almighty, for all your mercy and loving kindness shown to us, your people. We bless you for the goodness that freely chose us to salvation before the world began. We thank you for creating us after your own image, for redeeming us when we were lost with the precious blood of Christ, for sanctifying us by your Spirit in the revelation and knowledge of your Word, for your help and support in our necessities, your fatherly comfort in our tribulations, for saving us in the dangers of body and soul, and giving us so long a time of repentance. We acknowledge, most merciful Father, to have received these benefits from your goodness alone. And we implore you to continue to be gracious, to increase our thankfulness to you, kindling our hearts with pure and fervent love. Help us not to receive your word in vain but graciously assist us always in heart, word, and deed to sanctify and worship your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If I say the name Galileo, would you recognize that name? Galileo was an Italian astronomer. He was a physicist. And uh, he challenged kind of the conventional, traditional thinking of his day. He made some important discoveries, Galileo did. He, um, he was a Christian, and he's most famous for his invention of the telescope. And in 1609, with his telescope and his Bible, he began to make some spectacular discoveries about the sun and the stars, about our galaxy, about Earth. And among his discoveries was the idea that the earth was not the center of the universe. And neither are you, in case you're wondering. But um, the Galileo discovered that the earth was not the center of the universe. In fact, it wasn't even, it's not even the center of our solar system. He concluded that the universe did not revolve around the earth, as was properly taught in Galileo's day. Well, he showed some of his discoveries to the Pope of the Catholic Church, Pope Paul V. But the Catholic Church wasn't too happy with Galileo for his discoveries. They were certain that the earth was the center of God's creation. And if anything else was the center of God's creation, it would be like the earth was worshiping it. That was the conclusion of the Catholic Church. And so, the church even tried throwing scripture at Galileo. One of their favorite scriptures was Acts chapter 1 verse 13, apparently because they did a little word play with Galileo's name. Acts chapter 1 verse 13 is, why are you men of Galilee standing here and looking up to the sky? Now talk about taking a verse out of context, that's taking a verse out of context. But Apparently they were trying to use a little wordplay instead of Galilee, Galileo, for his name. Well, he was investigated by the Roman Inquisition first in 1615. He was accused of reinterpreting the Bible, which to the Catholic Church was dangerously close to being a Protestant. 
and it was concluded that Galileo's views were foolish, absurd, and heretical. Well, over the next few years, Galileo wrote a book defending his views. And in 1632, he published his book. And in it, it appeared that he was attacking the Pope. And so once again, Galileo was taken before the Inquisition to answer questions or charges that he was contradicting church teaching and tradition. And he was tried by the Inquisition and he was found to be vehemently suspect of heresy. And he was forced to recant. Well, Galileo was 70 years old at the time. And uh, he, is, he was a threat, at least threatened with torture if he was not actually tortured. He was forced to recant his beliefs and state that his observations concerning the earth moving around the sun... He was forced to say that that was an error and a heresy. Now, according to popular legend, after recanting his theory that the earth moved around the sun, uh, the legend goes that Galileo muttered under his breath the rebellious phrase, and yet it moves. After he recanted, he was placed under house arrest. He was treated badly until he became blind and feeble and eventually died in 1642. Of course, we know Galileo was right and the Catholic Church was wrong. Why? Well, for one thing, it was terribly resistant to change. Resisted anything new. Now, in our study of the book of Luke, we've discovered that Jesus ran into some similar problems when he would run into the Pharisees and religious leaders of his day. They didn't understand, and frankly, they didn't want to understand what Jesus was doing. And we're going to see another instance of that in Luke chapter 5, verse 33. But let me just remind you where we're at, because last time we, we studied in the book of Luke chapter 5, we talked about how that Jesus had called this tax collector named Levi, told him to come and follow him, and Scripture tells us that he immediately left everything and followed Jesus. And then Levi held a banquet at his home, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others who were there, others that apparently Levi wanted them to follow Jesus as well. But the Pharisees weren't too happy about Jesus' disciples eating with all these tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus made it clear to them the reason why he came. And Jesus said to them, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the Pharisees were right about one thing. You know what they were right about? Levi's friends were sinners. That's what they were right about. But what they failed to understand was that they too needed to repent they were sinners who needed to repent and they also failed to understand that holiness doesn't require separation from sinners but from sin God wants his people to be holy but that doesn't require separation from sinners it requires separation from sin God wants us to be a holy people in the midst of an unholy world 
And the Pharisees didn't understand that. Well, then you come to verse 33, and there's really, it's apparently another group of people, we'll get into this in just a minute, but another group of people that come to Jesus and ask some questions. And it's apparently at the same banquet. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed." But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. So there's a group of people that come to Jesus and they present a problem to Jesus. And the problem they have is that the disciples of John fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but Jesus' disciples are having a good time eating and drinking and just living and enjoying life. And they have a problem with that. Now apparently this group of people was actually John's disciples. John the Baptist, some of his disciples. We're told that in Matthew's account and Mark's account of this same story. That is John's disciples. Luke isn't real clear on who, who these people are. But this feast at Levi's house may have been on one of the fasting days that the Pharisees had adopted. Now, in the Old Testament, if you read in the Old Testament, there's actually only one time, one place, or one event that you should regularly, you were commanded to fast. And that was in connection with the Day of Atonement. Now, there's other fasts that take place in the Old Testament, but that was the only time in which you were commanded to fast. But you come along to Jesus' day, and, you know, anytime there is a good thing, there almost always comes those who abuse the good thing and turn it into something not as good. Right? And, and some believe that fasting brought them some kind of self-achieved holiness. In fact, even though the Old Testament prophets, prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, warned Israel about this idea that somehow fasting would make you holy. In fact, Isaiah, I want to look at Isaiah 58 for a minute. In Isaiah 58, the Israelites are complaining to God, and they say to God, Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you've taken no knowledge of it? So that's Israel complaining to God. And God responds to that question, by saying, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? 
then now listen to what God says, the type of fast that he wants. He says, is, this, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the fountains of many generations. You shall be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Now that's what God says to his people concerning fasting. He says, if you want to fast, that's the kind of fast I want. Not where you're just profane or you're, you're, you're putting on sackcloth and ashes and you're abstaining from things because you think somehow that's going to merit you favor with me. That's not what God was interested in, just fasting and pretense. In fact, if you'll notice, if you notice as we're reading through that, I hope Jesus and his ministry came to your mind. Because Jesus and his ministry did all of these things that in Isaiah 58, God said he wanted. In fact, Jesus is at this banquet to reach sinful people. And his disciples are there as well, and they're rejoicing and having a good time. Levi, a tax collector, has just left everything to follow Jesus, and they're having a good time. They're rejoicing. Levi's brought some of his friends in, but then come along some of those sour-faced Christians. Maybe I shouldn't call them Christians. But for the, for the Pharisees, fasting was all about mourning. The mournful sacrifice of offering your flesh to God in hope that it would somehow gain God's attention. And the effect of that was the religious practices had become solemn and joyless and gloomy. Some Pharisees actually would whiten their faces to appear more emaciated when they were fasting. So... They try to make themselves look like they were hungrier than they actually were. In their attempt to appear spiritual. You see, the Pharisees thought that to be spiritual, that means in doing things that you don't want to do. And refrain from doing things you do want to do. That's what they thought being spiritual meant. Keep away from doing things you or do things you don't want to do and don't do things you do want to do. But that's not what Jesus wants from his followers. God is not interested in religious practices merely for the sake of religious practices. 
He's not interested in you coming to church this morning just merely because you got to or it's the right thing to do. That doesn't merit you any favor with God. God wants you to do the things you do because you want to. You see, Jesus wants to change the motivation center of your heart until you do the things you do and avoid the things that you don't do precisely because you're motivated in your heart to please God in everything you do. In other words, the reason why you should come to church is not just merely because you're going to drag yourself out by the nap of your neck, even if you don't feel like it, and you're going to come anyways because, bless God, that's what we do around this household. Whew, that kind of sounded like something I'd said before to my kids. I don't know. That's the wrong motivation. The right motivation is to say, Jesus, I love you with all my heart. And right now, my flesh may want to stay in bed, but I want you, and I want to please you more than I want to please myself. And so, Jesus, because I love you, I'm going to go and I'm going to worship you, and I'm going to rejoice in your goodness. You see, Christ wants to transform your want to so that you aren't living the way you live because you got to but because you want to. So the problem here is these people who are questioning about Jesus' disciples, Jesus' disciples are eating and having a good time. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But Jesus, yours, eat and drink. What's up with this, Jesus? That's the problem. So then Jesus makes a great point. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's the answer that Jesus gives to them. We'll get to the second part of his answer here in a minute. Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, perhaps we need to understand a little bit about a Jewish wedding. A newly married Jewish couple didn't go on a honeymoon, but they stayed home, and they had a week-long celebration in which there was continual eating, feasting, celebrating. The bridegroom would be treated like royalty for the week. Sometimes they even wore crowns, literally. They were attended to by their chosen friends. The guests of the bridegroom would take care of the bride and the groom. And these wedding guests were exempted from all fasting according to Jewish rabbinical teaching. They had a ruling, even, even the Pharisees had concluded this, that all in attendance of the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. You don't fast when you're celebrating a wedding. You just don't do that. <laughs> you see, Jesus' point here is his presence justified his disciples' feasting. The bridegroom was with them, so they feasted. Why do you fast? Well, fasting reflects some condition of dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. 
But Jesus was with his disciples. Why would they fast? As long as he was with them, there was no reason for them to fast and hope that he would come to meet their need. He was with them. Why fast? And when God's presence comes, he brings joy. I have to wonder sometimes about that because sometimes we say God's presence was here in our services and he had promised us he always would be with us. But then sometimes I look out at some of you and you look like you've been sucking on dill pickles. And I just wonder occasionally. But the question to why Jesus' disciples weren't fasting assumed, there's an assumption in their question. The assumption was that abstaining from eating and drinking is better than partaking. That's kind of the assumption behind the question. They believed that abstaining made you godlier and it pleased God. They thought that treating their body severely and avoiding pleasure somehow leads to holiness. And Paul would deal with this idea later. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Here's the regulations he's talking about. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these indeed have indeed an appearance and wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what the Pharisees and other ascetics in Jesus' day were saying, essentially, was do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They thought that would make them holy. Paul says in, in Colossians 2, they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So simply doing some kind of religious practice for the sake of doing it because you think it will merit you favor with God, that has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And need I remind you this morning that legalism does not lead to a closer relationship with Christ, despite however strong some people will say and advocate for it. But it doesn't. Rules and regulations without relationship will always end up equaling rebellion and hypocrisy. That's what will result from rules and regulations without relationship. As one man put it, with a list of rules, devotees may feel a greater sense of security. The rules work like religious training wheels and that they may keep us from tipping over. But they are also confining for they will keep us from breaking free. Rules also help us gauge whether we are making any headway in our religious quest or not. This is the rub. They lead us to regard our obligations to God as a checklist, which when we have completed the duties, mislead us into thinking we have done all that God requires. That's the danger of just checking off a list. Because you think you've done all that God requires. 
Rules and regulations may look good. They may have the appearance of wisdom. But Paul says they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We'll come back to Luke here. And the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day seem to assume that obedience to God was not about joy. In fact, they seem suspicious of joy. Don't, it's not, nothing, happiness is almost sinful, it appears to them. We've often made the mistake of thinking somehow that happiness is secondary to holiness, and it's not. We try to separate joy from happiness, and you can't do that either. The truth is that in the Bible, you can't separate the two. John Wesley said, Many indeed think of being happy with God in heaven, but being happy in God on earth never entered into their thoughts. And Wesley believed that if you try to divorce happiness from holiness, you misunderstand both. In this plain account of Christian perfection, it's happiness, Wesley wrote, that characterizes the one who loves God with all their heart. Amen. Wesley said, He is their one desire, their one delight, and they are continually happy in Him. Wesley believed that happiness was only another name for Christian religion. And he who is not happy is not a Christian. That's what Wesley said. In fact, he said none but a Christian is happy. Adam Clark, the early Methodist theologian, said, Be happy, for it is the will of God that you should be so. Therefore, he wills that you should be holy. Holiness and happiness are inseparable. Sin and misery are equally so. In other words, sin brings misery, and holiness and happiness are combined as well. So what does it mean to be happy in God? Well, Wesley, to Wesley, happiness is a state where desire is satisfied. When your desires are satisfied in Jesus, you're happy. Dr. Phil Brown, many of us know him. He defined biblical happiness this way. The satisfaction that comes from attaining what is good from God's perspective. So why am I talking about all this and giving you these quotes about happiness? Well, the Pharisees had this mentality, it seems, that they're like a lot of people that I know today. Anybody ever heard the author Irma Bombeck? She was an author and humorist. She wrote about how she was sitting in church one Sunday and a little boy turned around and began to smile at the people behind him. Well, when the child's mother saw this child smiling, she did that stage whisper, you know what I'm talking about? She said to her child, stop that grinning. You're in church. She gave her child a swat. So that's better. And Irma Brombeck concluded that some people come to church looking like they just read the will of their rich aunt only to learn that she left everything to her pet hamster. <laughs> and I think that may have been the mentality of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. 
that, you know, Jesus, your disciples are just having too good of a time. But remember, they were with Jesus. And all their desires were satisfied. Because when you're satisfied in Jesus, you can truly be happy. And when you're with the bridegroom, there's no reason to fast. But then at the end of verse, in verse 35, Jesus goes on to say, and he says, then the days are coming, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. There is a place for fasting today. Jesus isn't present with us in the flesh today. His spirit is with us. We rejoice in his presence, but we long for the day when we'll see him face to face. So there's a place for fasting, but Dallas Wooler put it this way. He said, fasting confirms our utter dependence upon God by finding in him a source of sustenance beyond food. We learn that we too have meat to eat that the world does not know about. Fasting unto our Lord is therefore feasting, feasting on him and on doing his will. In fasting, we learn how to suffer happily as we feast on God. And it is a good lesson because in our lives we will suffer no matter what else happens to us. But do you notice what Willer was saying there? Fasting wasn't, isn't some kind of sour morning. No, when you fast, you fast in order to feast on God. Willard actually says when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days fasting, we tend to think of Jesus at being at his weakest. Well, Willard proposes that Jesus was actually at his strongest because he had been fasting for 40 days. Interesting thought. I'll allow you to chew on that one for a while. The point is, fasting for us is not necessarily a It shouldn't be a mournful, dutiful, begrudging thing that we have to do. By by Jesus' day, I told you that initially there was one day out of the the year that they were commanded in the Old Testament to fast. By Jesus' day, the Pharisees had had declared that you were to fast on Mondays and Thursdays every week. So that's why they got a problem. Probably this meal they're having may have been on one of those fasting days. And it became a matter of duty. And Jesus isn't interested in us just doing duty for duty's sake. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 13? He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found and covered it up, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In other words, if you have to give up anything for God's kingdom, you do so in joy. The kingdom of God that Jesus brings is so overwhelmingly wonderful that with joy we give up everything else in order to have that one treasure which is Jesus Christ. So if you fast, and there be times for fasting, you're fasting so you can have the greatest treasure that anyone can ever have. And that is more of Jesus. Do you see the difference? 
On the flip side of that coin is a danger that we all face from time to time. When we do something for Jesus, maybe we give up something for Jesus and Jesus blesses us for it. It's natural for us to begin to think, well, if, if we gave up this for Jesus and Jesus blessed us for it, or if Jesus said to me, John, I want you to give up this. The danger we have is when we've given up something for Jesus and Jesus blesses us for it, then we think, well, if that worked for me, then that must apply to everyone. And that's where the danger lies. As one man put it, the first step in becoming a self-righteous Pharisee is using our personal religious example as a requirement for everyone else to obey. Oswald Chambers, and probably my favorite life quote, that you've heard me say many times, he said, never make a principle out of your own experience, out of your experience. Let God be as original with other people as he is with you. God is original with us. In other words, he leads us and guides us. But the danger we have, again, is that sometimes we give up something for Jesus. Maybe you give up eating for a day. You fast. And God blesses you. And so you decide, you know what, I think everybody should fast because it worked for me. Or maybe God led you in some area of your life. Maybe he said to you, you know, I want you to, to give up watching, watching uh, Netflix for the next 30 days. And so you do. And you decide, man, ooh, God was so close to me this month. Everybody ought to give up Netflix and never watch another show ever. What you're doing is you're making a principle out of your own experience. And you're not letting God be as original with others as he was with you. So Jesus gives some parables, and I'm wrapping up. He gives three parables here to illustrate. And I want you to keep in mind that the issue behind all of this is really ultimately the relationship of the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, and the New Covenant, the Gospel of Christ. So Jesus gives them a parable in verse 36. And, and I say three parables because three times here Jesus says the words, no one. So just notice that. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, if you think about this illustration here, it's really kind of a little bit nonsensical, because why would anyone cut up an old, a new pair of clothes in order to patch an old pair? If you're going to patch, you do so with an older pair. Sue, Sue's looking at Wayne, so maybe Wayne's done this before, I don't know. <clears throat> But Jesus' point is simple. You cannot mix what Jesus brings with the old ways without having a destructive mix. His new way needs a new way of doing things. You don't take a piece from the new and try to mix it with the old. Now go to the next parable, verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine 
must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, in Jesus' day, they used the skin of goats for holding wine. The skins would be stripped nearly whole off the goat. It'd be tanned, or at least partially tanned. They'd fill it with new wine. And I know some of you think that may mean new grape juice, but it, yeah, okay. It, it, all right. <clears throat> that wasn't in my notes. They're natural. The, the natural elasticity of the goat skins would allow the fermenting new wine to expand. But if you put new wine into old wine skins, the old wine skins would be more brittle and inflexible and could burst. And then you've lost both your wine and your wine skins. And the point again is, with Jesus, there's a new thing that has come. Therefore, there must be new containers. Jesus is doing something new. As one commentator put it, when Christ fills our lives, the swelling life within us expands us beyond our imagining. The inner life expels unneeded qualities and fills every aspect of life. Once Christ takes up residence in our lives, every aspect of our being from our intellect to our emotions to our will, undergoes change. And Christ keeps increasing our spiritual capacity so that we will always be able to hold more of His fullness. The more we receive, the more we are able to receive. Well, then you come to the third of Jesus' parables. In verse 39. And this one at first blushes seems confusing. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. Now, I don't drink. I've never drunk. Christians don't get drunk. That's scriptural, by the way. And I am a teetotaler. I don't drink at all. But my understanding is old wine is better. Is that right? It's what I've heard. And Jesus says, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. If, as I've already told you, these three parables are illustrating the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant, is Jesus saying here that the old covenant is superior to the new covenant? Because no one drinking old wine wants new wine. No, the point is, those who like old wine don't want to try the new because their minds are already made up. They've already decided, the old is good. I don't want none of that new stuff. It's kind of like a few years ago, if we can get away from the wine illustration for a moment, to the, uh, remember when, when uh, the new Coke, was it new Coke, what they call it? New Coke? Remember that when that came out? And everybody was in an outrage. It was one of the biggest uh, mess-ups Coca-Cola ever made. Well, in blind taste tests, new Coke actually did taste better, is my understanding. But they had to reverse their position, so then you had Coca-Cola Classic. Because the old, everybody said, was better. 
because their minds were already made up. Jesus has come to do something new. He's come to inaugurate the new covenant in his blood. He's told them in verse 32, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And to those who thought the old was good enough, Jesus' remark here is both a description and a warning. And if I can quote one more commentator, Grant Osborne said this. He said, Christ has initiated a new covenant between God and humanity. Encased in his gospel message of salvation, the Pharisees are trying to force this new truth into the old, used-up structures of the rigid Judaism. The two cannot fit together, and in the end they will both be destroyed. The new freedom in Christ cannot be encased in the rigid rules of the oral traditions. The gospel truths cannot be forced into the old religious ways of Judaism. The new directives of Jesus must be allowed to be expressed in the new, fresh religious structures Jesus is developing. The new way is, is actually not brand new, but that which fulfills the old. It is the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins, a new form of old truths that liberates the oppressed and brings salvation in Jesus Christ. See, salvation has always been by grace through faith. In the Old Testament, they weren't saved by their works. They were saved by grace through faith. You remember the Israelites were not God's chosen people because of anything they had done or because of who they were. Now over time, their thinking on that became skewed and they began to think that it was because of who they were and because of what they did. But God made it clear to them, you're not, I'm not saving you. I'm not redeeming you because of anything you've done. I've chosen you as my special people. They then had to respond to God's grace by faith and act in obedience to the covenant that God made with them. And God made several covenants with them, one of which was the Mosaic covenant that God made with them. But salvation was always by grace through faith. But Israel did not keep their covenant. And the problem was, the covenant was external. It made demands of them, but did not provide the power to fulfill the demands. The, 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 the law made these demands on them, but internally the people had a problem. It's the same problem that all of us are born with. We're born with an inherited depravity. The law pointed out their sin for what it really was, rebellion and disobedience to God. Paul said that the law was intended to tutor Israel and prepare them and the whole world for the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what he tells them in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. But now we see here in Luke that Jesus is being unveiled in his ministry to Israel. We know that Jesus will eventually lay down his life for our sins. He fulfills all the sacrificial, all the ethical demands that the old covenant law had foreshadowed. Jesus came and he did something new. And if you want to know what he did that was new, is he brought a new covenant in his blood.
Which is why the author of Hebrews said, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The author of Hebrews will call the old covenant, he calls it weak and useless. In Romans, or Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. And the reason he says it was weak and useless is because it was unable to provide sinful humanity with righteousness, with life or salvation. It could not provide the perfection that you and I need. So something new had to happen. And Paul says in Romans chapter 10 verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, and that is the new thing that Jesus came to do, and which Jesus warned them, many will say, the old is better. That's the last illustration that Jesus uses here in Luke chapter 5. He says, many are going to say, we don't want any of that new stuff, the old's better. But Jesus came to provide something better. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews makes over and over and over again. If you remember from our study of Hebrews, there's a better covenant, a better priesthood. Why? Because of Jesus. So like Galileo, Jesus was put to death for the changes that he brought. But thank God he came because the new is definitely better than the old. Amen. Amen. Jesus, I thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I've tried to preach the message that you laid on my heart and the truth from your word. I pray that you will apply it to our lives. Help us, Lord, to realize How precious you truly are. You are the treasure hidden in a field. Help us, Lord, with joy to give up everything so that we might have you as our treasure. Help us, Lord, not to try to take parts of the old and parts of the new and stitch them together and somehow think that we can earn our salvation or that we can bring on all these just external things. No, Lord, we know that you want to transform us from the inside out. You want to change the motivation center of our lives so that we live the way we live, not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we want to please you above everything else. So, Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning. You know every life. You know every heart. And, Lord, if there are those here that are still trying to please you in their own strength, they're still trying to earn their salvation, they're trying to do right, they're trying to do, 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 but yet they lack the power, I pray, Lord, you'll help them to understand that salvation comes only by repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And Lord, when you come and you take up residence in our lives, you transform us from the inside out, enabling us and empowering us to be the people that you died to make us be. 
Help us all, Lord, to live for you and to be the people you want us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless.